Well, if you have your Bible, I do want to invite you to turn with me once more to uh, the little letter of 2 John, where in just a moment we'll read from verse 7 through verse 11. Uh, There was a shocking story in the news just a couple of years ago involving a guy whose name is Zachary Joseph Horwitz, better known by his stage name, Zach Avery. Now, some of you may remember this in the news, but he was very sharp talented, charismatic guy, had chiseled features, all of which served him well in Hollywood, uh, which helped him launch a promising acting career. He landed roles in at least 15 different movies, and he was well on his way to an even bigger stage when he started his own entertainment company. It was known as One in a Million Productions, and by accounts, he Uh, met with potential investors. He told them about his company's agreements with Netflix and other streaming providers. And he promised his investors a 40% return on their investment in his company. So from 2014 to 2019, he raised more than $690 million for his company. But you see, the shock came when it was discovered that nothing was real Because Zach Avery had no relationship with Netflix. No distribution rights had ever been secured. Uh, The supposed distribution contracts had all been forged by him, and he had used the money from new investors to pay older investors in what's known as a classic Ponzi scheme. Same thing that Bernie Madoff did. You remember, he was the guy that made off with everybody else's money. But Zach Avery squandered much of the money on this lavish lifestyle, uh, including a $6 million mansion, cars, all these other luxuries, extravagant international travel, and his investors lost millions of dollars, and upon being convicted of securities fraud, Zach Avery was sentenced to spend the next few decades behind bars. Now, I can't hear of something like that and not be reminded of what John says here in 2 John verse 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. And the worst kind of deceivers are not those who cheat you out of your money, as bad as they are. If you've ever been cheated out of your money by someone, it's really a humiliating thing. I remember I was in Peru years ago Uh, on a mission trip, and we were in a town. The only way that we could exchange money was to, you know, trade our currency in with these these street vendors who would exchange currency, American currency for the Peruvian currency. And I remember going up to this guy, and I had, you know, $20 bills that were going to be converted over into the Peruvian money. And I mean, I watched this guy. He, he, he counted back so many dollars, and I was just so, I was watching him. I knew this guy, and I watched him. I said, no, you're cheating me. He said, oh, 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 okay. And then he, he counted back again, and this time I was on it. I, I called him, and then I walked away, and I started counting what he gave me. <laughs> he cheated me even more the second time. <laughs> and it's a humiliating thing when you're taken advantage of like that by some deceiver. But you see, it's far worse to be deceived by those who operate in the spiritual realm. And that's what the Apostle John is dealing with here in this passage that we're going to read. 2 John, verse 7. Read with me. John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, 
Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So here in this section of his little letter, John is warning his readers about the dangers associated with with counterfeit prophets, false prophets who offer a counterfeit Christianity. I just want to speak from this subject once more, uh, confronting a counterfeit Christianity. John wants his readers to be on guard against a particular idea that was being promoted by some, and it was an idea that centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so serious was this false idea that it undermined the gospel message. It diluted it, thereby distorting it altogether. It really was nothing more than poison that came from the lips of these smooth-talking teachers. You might could say that if they put all of their ideas in a bottle, you could put the, the skull and crossbones on the bottle, you know, the international symbol for some poisonous substance. That's essentially what John is saying here when he's warning us against the poisonous influence of those who may pose as Christian teachers, but they're really selling a deceitful or counterfeit version of Christianity. Now keep in mind, he's not talking about those who may differ on areas of secondary importance. Uh, He's not referring to those peripheral issues, issues that you and I, doctrinal issues that you and I may have disagreement about, which are secondary in nature. No, he's talking about outright denial of those primary doctrines that are centered in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, These teachers that John is referring to were those who were denying both the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. They did not confess that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. And so the Jesus that they offered was an entirely different Jesus than the one that we're presented with in the Gospels. And so they were preaching a counterfeit Christ that resulted in a counterfeit Christianity, a form of Christianity which is not Christianity at all. And so this is a passage that really is a warning and a reminder for us to be discerning and well-armed in this battle of ideas which is raging in our own time. Because the fact of the matter is, this was not something that was simply true of John's day in the first century world. No, with the passing of time, the enemy has still been trying to deceive men and women as to the truth of who Jesus Christ really is. Now, you look at this text, and and really, there's a continuity of thought from verse 6 on into verse number 7 that you might miss if we're not careful. And and it's not that John is really beginning a new thought here in verse number 7, but really, he's, he's sort of continuing with this same emphasis that he starts early in the letter, and you really see that with this little word for in verse number 7. Now, if you look look at that in light of what he said in verse 6, he says, this is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it, 
for many deceivers have gone out into the world. So he, there's a conjunction here in, in the Greek text. You might could translate it since or because. It's important that you walk in the commandment that you've heard from the beginning because many deceivers have gone out into the world. He's, he's saying that the reason that you and I need to walk in the truth and hold fast to the love that we have for each other in the body of Christ is that there is so much deception in the world. Deception is abundant. And we need to continually hold one another accountable as we walk in the truth and we constantly remind ourselves of the precious nature of the truth of the gospel of Christ. And so here in verse 7, he's, he's warning the church of this spiritual deception that we must avoid. He follows that up by calling them to discernment. There's a distinction that he makes as well as a directive that's to be followed. Now, we've already looked at the first of these, the deception to be avoided. He deals with this in verse 7. And uh, he really has something to say about the reality, the nature, and the origin of this spiritual deception in his own time. So what's the reality of this spiritual deception? He says, many deceivers have gone out into the world. You remember when Jesus is praying for his disciples in John 17, uh, he's praying specifically not that they be taken from the world, but that they be sent out into the world as messengers of the truth. It's interesting to me that Jesus prayed that way in his high priestly prayer. The world we live in, let's just be honest, there are a lot of ideas and there are a lot of dangers that are out there and there's a lot of deception, but you know, the thing is, God has called you and me to be salt, to be light, uh, to be a mouthpiece for the truth of the gospel. And Jesus prayed that we would be that. Uh, Matthew 28, he commissions his disciples. He sends his disciples out into the world uh, with the truth of the gospel. Pentecost means that we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're to make disciples of those who believe, which means that we've got to constantly communicate the message of the truth with those who are unbelievers. And so in that sense, we've been sent out into the world. It, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the enemy tries to mimic what what, what Christ has already done. And just as Jesus sends us out into the world as missionaries and ambassadors for Christ who speak the truth, the enemy has his own emissaries that he commissions, that he sends out into the world to keep the world blinded by lies. And so that's what John is saying here. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. That's the reality of it. But what about the nature of this spiritual deception. Specifically, he says that these deceivers, they don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Though they claim to speak with spiritual authority, they were really deceived as to who Jesus is, and they were thereby deceiving others. And what was the lie that they, they spread? Well, namely, that Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh. It was sort of a combination of, of, of Greek philosophical dualism that said matter is evil, the spirit is good, and so God would never so condescend uh, that he would become one of us in human flesh. And so these Gnostic teachers were basically saying that Jesus, uh, he, he, the man Jesus is different from, from Christ the eternal spirit, 
and, and they said the Christ spirit came upon him at his baptism but left him before he was crucified. And so in their minds, they were trying to reconcile the claims of the gospel, which clearly say that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and that didn't jive with their philosophy, and so they reject it, and they come up with their own philosophy, their own religion. And so they spoke of Jesus. They attached his name to their ideas, but it was evident that theirs was not the Jesus of apostolic testimony. Uh, In my devotional time, I've been reading through um, A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. It's a phenomenal book. If you've never read it, you need to read it, in which he just simply deals sort of devotionally with the attributes of God. But there's one chapter in that book where he deals with the self-existence of God, the fact that God doesn't depend on anyone or anything for his existence. That's different from me and you because my being is derived from him, (laughs) I'm dependent upon him for my existence, but God's not dependent upon me for his existence. But Tozer said something in that, cha- in that chapter that I thought was just so good. He said, to admit that there's one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all of our categories, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries, this requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess, And so we save face by thinking God down to our level so that we can manage him. The idea is he's saying in our unbelief, we may reject the clear revelation of who God is that we see in Scripture so that we can come up with our own version of who we think he is that already jibes with our our philosophy. That's what these Gnostic teachers were doing. They did with Jesus what a child does when he goes into a -a Build-A-Bear store. You know, I'll just build a version of Jesus that I like, that I always understand, as opposed to what the Scripture clearly says, that he is God in human flesh, fully God, fully man. They couldn't understand that, so they reject that and come up with their own system. And that's what John is warning his readers against here. He's saying, listen, just because they use the name Jesus and they talk about Jesus doesn't mean that it's the same Jesus. And so that's the nature of their deception. And then ultimately, what's the origin of this spiritual deception? Well, John is clear there in verse 7. He says, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. All lies find their ultimate origin in the father of lies, Satan himself. And this deception, this antichrist spirit is that which poses as Christ or offers itself up in the place of Christ so as to deny the true Christ. And men and women, lest we forget, the apostle Paul is clear that this is going to be the prevailing spirit of the age in the last days. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, Paul says this. He says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the world. And it says in verse 8 of that passage that the lawless one one day is going to be revealed. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And listen to this. With all wicked deception for those who were perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. 
So no wonder that John is warning his readers here about just the importance of loving the truth and walking in the truth and walking in love. Why? Because there's so much deception in the world that must be avoided. Now, secondly, the second thing that he mentions in this passage uh, is the discernment that must be practiced. In view of all of the spiritual deception and these many deceivers that are in the world, the spirit of Antichrist, which is already at work in the world, John says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for but may win a full reward. And you keep in mind what he said thus far in his letter, how, how truth and how love are really the twin rails upon which the engine of Christianity runs and how truth and love, this brings authenticity and balance to our Christian testimony and yet both of these, Denny Aiken says it this way, both of these are endangered species, especially in a postmodern age where pluralism and sentimentalism reign supreme. Again, John's saying, truth, know the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Be discerning. Watch yourselves. We're to live in the truth. We're to love according to the truth. And he says we're to be on the lookout for truth. And we're to carefully distinguish between what's true and what's not true. And every idea that we hear, we're, we're to not just simply accept it at face value, but we're to be critically discerning and we're to view it through the lens of, of, of God's word. Now, John's not saying that we're supposed to become so critical and so analytical and so skeptical that the truth overpowers our responsibility to love. I want to be critically discerning, but that doesn't mean that I need to just be a critical man or you need to be a critical woman. <laughs> you know, I think that's something we want to avoid also. And yet, faithfulness to the truth demands that I be critically discerning. This doesn't cancel our love for people. The fact that we're not simply accepting every idea as, as true that we hear, but that we're holding, this, holding every idea uh, with this suspicion as we look at it in the light of what Scripture says. It does mean that I love you, but if you stumble, I'm going to come help pick you up. Uh, if you sin, I'll come and confront you. Love demands that. If I love you and you have a need, I'll come and I'll meet that need. Love demands that. If you're grieving, I'll comfort you because love demands that. That's what Scripture calls me to do. And so when you see truth and love held in this balance, coupled by this instruction to be discerning, folks, this is New Testament Christianity, isn't it? At its finest. So John is giving his readers here this present tense imperative. Watch yourselves. Uh, it means that you're to continually be on guard. It means you never let your guard down here. You, you never take the truth for granted because you can easily fall victim to some lie or deception. Now again, this flies in the face of the times in which we live, because in our day, we're not supposed to draw such clear lines. <laughs> you know, we're not supposed to discriminate for any reason at all. Now, there is a discrimination that we avoid, and, and, and we're not to be discriminating when it comes to uh, racial differences and those kinds of things, but we are to be discriminating when it comes to ideas 
And just because someone signs the name of Jesus to some particular idea does not make that idea legitimate. And that's what John is driving home here in this little letter. The psalmist prayed for this kind of discernment. In in Psalm 119, verse 68, the psalmist said, Lord, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. That word judgment there means taste. He's saying, Lord, teach me good taste, clear judgment, discernment, knowledge, because I believe your word. It's to distinguish between what's right and what's wrong. He's referring to the ability to weigh up and assess perhaps the moral and spiritual status of individuals, groups, and even entire movements among people. Jesus emphasized this in his Sermon on the Mount. It's interesting to me. I think perhaps the most quoted verse now uh, that's often used as ammunition against biblical faithfulness is Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. And then that's been radically reinterpreted now to mean that we can't make any judgment call about right or wrong whatsoever. And some people would say, I'm going to use Jesus as proof for that. Well, let me ask you this question. Have you read that in light of its full context? Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? You know what he's referring to here? Hypocritical judgment. Pharisaical judgment. The type of judgment that's quick to point out wrongs and transgressions in the lives of of others while ignoring its own transgressions. That's what he's warning against. But you see, here's the thing. He turns right around down in verse 6 of that passage and says, don't give dogs what is holy and don't cast your pearls before swine. So he's saying there's a time and a place where you exercise discernment, clear judgment. And, and right and wrong, it's not one of these things that, that you know, it's, it's so arbitrary that's left up solely to you to decide what's right for you, and it's left up to me to decide what's right for me. No, we can be clear, as clear as the Apostle John is on the subject. And so this demands that we be discerning, and that's what Jesus is calling for among his followers. Be discerning. Paul says this much, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He gives three straightforward commands and and really spells out the requirements of a discerning mind. Listen to this. He says, examine everything carefully. That's instruction number one. He says, hold fast to that which is good. That's instruction number two. And then he says, abstain from every form of evil. That's instruction number three. So if I'm going to be a spiritually discerning Christian man, it demands that I examine everything carefully and I view it in the light of God's revealed truth. And then I don't take that truth for granted, but I hold fast to that which is good. And I abstain from every form of evil, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what it means to be a a clearly discerning Christian man or woman. So there's the deception to be avoided. There's this discernment to be practiced. And now notice number three, John mentions a distinction that's to be made. He had labored in the lives of these believers 
He wanted to see the full fruit of that labor. And so he goes on and says there in verse 8, listen, I'm afraid that if you don't start being vigilant uh, about who you let into your house and, and, and who you expose yourself to and the ideas that you begin to entertain, you might lose what we've labored so hard to accomplish. He doesn't want them to go in reverse spiritually so as to undo what's been done in their lives in terms of their own spiritual development. Now listen, do you know that, do you know that there is no such thing as stagnancy in the Christian life? I'm either moving forward in my faith or I am backsliding. That's a good word we don't use a whole lot anymore, but it's the truth, right? There's no such thing as stagnancy. And the moment that we begin to take for granted our own spiritual growth and development, that stagnancy will result in some type of spiritual decline. And he's not talking about losing salvation here, to be sure. But he is talking about losing a sense of full reward. And this idea that one day all of us are going to stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and as believers, we're going to receive rewards for the deeds that we've done in the body. Largely, the way that we've responded to the truth, what we've done with that truth, how we've served God faithfully in our own Christian life and experience. And so he then warns in verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ he says, be sure that person does not have God. So here he's warning against this kind of progress, which is really not progress at all. It's apostasy. That's what he means when he's referring to those who run on ahead so that no longer do they abide in the truth of the gospel. The Jesus that they claim to follow is no longer the Jesus of apostolic testimony. <laughs> no matter what that calls it, that's, by the way, progressive Christianity that denies the cardinal truths of the faith, such as the, the incarnation, uh, the virgin birth of Christ, the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ that sort of reduces Jesus to nothing more than just an example to follow, a good teacher. Listen, that cannot rightly be called Christianity by any apostolic definition. And so it's really sinister and deceitful that the enemy would want that to appear as progressive Christianity. I mean, who doesn't want to make progress? John is warning his readers against that kind of thing. He says, that's not really progress at all. That's apostasy. When you abandon the clear teaching of who Jesus Christ is, that's not progress. It's unbelief. But make no mistake about it, everyone who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So, by John's definition, if you deny Jesus, you can't rightfully claim to know the Father. But if you know Jesus as he is, as presented in the teaching of Christ, this body of apostolic witness, then you have both the Father and the Son. Isn't that really a wonderful promise? That's why Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I don't have time to get into this, but if we would go to Revelation chapter 2, there are a couple of churches in, in the early chapters of Revelation. You know, there are seven churches in, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, each of which receive a letter from the Lord Jesus. 
But in Revelation chapter 2, you've got both the church in the city of Pergamum and the church in the city of Thyatira. Both of these churches were warned by the Lord Jesus, even rebuked by Jesus, because they began to tolerate false teaching that led them to sort of compromise with the world and so corrupt the church. And perhaps the warning that's given to the church at Thyatira is, is the most serious In Revelation 2.20, he says to the church, I have this against you because you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. He's saying you're tolerating that in your midst, which is not true. And it's corrupting and undermining your witness. And so by the Lord's own testimony, false ideas must not be tolerated even if they exist under the banner of love and acceptance. So we've got to make this clear distinction here, don't we? I love how Eugene Peterson sort of paraphrases verse number 9 in the message. He says, anyone who gets so progressive in his thinking that he walks out on the teaching of Christ... So progressive that, that he, that, listen, the gospel, this is, this, we, need, we need some, we need more knowledge. That's what these Gnostics were saying. The Jesus that John preached, the Jesus that Paul preached, that's just simple. Nobody could ever in their right mind, it doesn't make sense how he could be both fully God and fully man. So, so what you really need is this knowledge that we have to offer. And that's how they were deceiving people. And so number four, notice the directive then that's to be followed. And John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what's the teaching he's referring to? Well, what he's already said there in verse 9, the teaching of Christ, the body of doctrine that we've received from the Lord himself concerning himself, preserved in apostolic testimony, preserved right here in these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the body of teaching that we now see contained in the 27 books of the New Testament. If anybody comes along and does not have this teaching, don't receive him into your house. Don't give him any greeting. You say, okay, John, that sounds pretty harsh. But, but, but keep in mind, he's not talking about engaging unbelievers with the truth of the gospel, right? Because there's a sense in which each of us are called to engage unbelievers with the truth of the gospel. Say you're working with somebody and, and they, they don't believe. Maybe they're clear and adamant in their unbelief and, and yet you're continuing to witness with that person. Do you use what John says here as sort of an excuse to cut off all contact with unbelievers in your life? No, It's not what he's saying at all. I mean, we need to engage an unbelieving world with the truth of the gospel. We should try to cultivate relationships with people in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, places where we work, people who are far from God because we want them to come to know Jesus. But here he's specifically referring to those who would be apostate, who would be intentional in, in, in this, this form of deception that they offer that denies the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. John's saying, look, be discerning. Don't bring them into your home. In his day, that was an important in- instruction because he lived in the time of hospitality. 
I mean, there wasn't a Motel 6 that these traveling teachers could get a room for the night because they were coming to town. No, they were dependent upon, they were praying off of the compassionate generosity and hospitality of genuine, sincere believers. And so often these, these itinerant teachers would sort of exploit that hospitality to try to introduce their false ideas. And John's saying, look, don't open up your house. If, if we were to sort of make some practical application for us, it would be this. Be careful about those you follow on social media. Uh, be careful about those religious ideas that are promoted among some that you then share on your Facebook page. Oh. Be careful what you bring into your home. Be careful those ideas that you entertain and bring into your life and you seek to build your life upon and around. Because it may not be according to the truth. And if it's not according to the truth, John says, listen, don't even give it your blessing. Don't give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, folks, listen. The enemy is working absolute overtime, overtime in our day to want to blind people to the truth. And that's something we've got to be on guard against constantly. It's really a characteristic of our time where modern culture upholds open-mindedness as sort of a virtue that all other virtues must be subservient to. And to be sure, there are some things that we shouldn't be so dogmatic about. But I'm reminded of the saying that's been around the church for centuries. It's this saying, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. John here is dealing with the essentials. This issue of who Jesus Christ is, there's no room for compromise whatsoever. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And anyone who would say anything else John says, is the deceiver and the antichrist. Don't entertain his ideas. Don't put him on the same level as apostolic testimony because that's not the truth. G.K. Chesterton said that I'm, he said, I'm incurably convinced that the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. And let me tell you something, who Jesus Christ is as presented right here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the apostolic testimony, that's something solid that you and I can shut our minds upon and have contentment and have confidence in, especially in a world that's full of so much deception. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Aren't you grateful for the truth of the gospel? I'm so thankful for the truth of the gospel that our God so loved a world of sinners that he sent his only son into the world. Jesus wasn't merely a man that became deity. No, he is the God-man, the eternal son come into the world in the flesh to suffer and die in my place and your place upon the cross and who's now risen He's our ascended Lord, and make no mistake about it, one day he's coming again, physically, visibly, and every eye will see him.
with heads bowed and eyes closed, do you know the truth of the gospel? Can you say beyond the shadow of all doubt that you know Jesus Christ personally? Personally. If not, then this morning I just want to invite you to simple faith. To just turn from your sin and place your faith and your trust and confidence in Jesus alone. Say, Pastor, what do I say? Listen, you call upon the name of the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, I confess my sin. But I also confess that you are my Savior. And I believe that you died on the cross for me and rose again from the dead. Please forgive me. Save me. Lord Jesus, this I pray. And my friend, if that's the confession of your heart and your life, let me tell you something. You come to Christ, he will, not, he will not turn you away. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word and that we can be confident and clear even in such chaotic times. Lord, use us as your mouthpiece for truth and gospel witness as we interact with people share the hope that we have with people and point people to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.